Politics and current affairs. Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. This week, we've seen the U.S. Democrats struggle to deal with the hot mess that was the Iowa caucuses and Barnaby Joyce fighting tooth and nail to get his hat back into the ring of Australian politics. But as always, we're going to give you the news you may not have heard on your airwaves this week. We'll be bringing you a special show centered on the climate crisis. We'll be focusing on the ways in which Australian communities are being affected by and responding to our changing environment. First up, we have Dr. Sebastian Fouch, an ecologist working with Penrith City Council, who'll be chatting to us about microclimates and their effect on Greater Sydney. After that, we have ABC News finance presenter Madeline Morris discussing the ways we can be more aware of carbon footprints and what we can do to reduce them. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you do to help reduce your carbon footprint? Do you use keep cups? Do you recycle? Uh, when I am a stronger person, I mm. plan to go vegan. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it starts once a month at the Sydney Vegan Markets and ends there. But <laughs> I will do my part. I want to know what you guys want to do. Text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Australia has been scorching through unbearably blistering temperatures this summer with the heat rising to an insufferable 49 degrees in Penrith last month. The heat is not just uncomfortable, but deadly. Since 1890, heat waves have killed more Australians than every other natural hazard combined, and it's not evenly distributed. It's causing microclimates in parts of Greater Sydney with heat disparities of up to 10 degrees. Dr. Sebastian Fouch is working with Penrith City Council to quantify temperatures in what's fast becoming one of the world's hottest cities. And he's here in the studio with us to discuss the issue. Hi there, Sebastian. Morning, guys. Morning. So, can you explain what a microclimate is and how they're affecting parts of Sydney. Before I do that, I just drop a bomb. I measured 51.5 degrees in Penrith this summer. It's over 50. Last year, I talked to the media saying we may see 50 degrees in urban space soon. I would have not known that it was just one year away already measuring above 50 degrees. So the heat's definitely on. So that's what a microclimate is? is Correct. Microclimate turns out to be very variable, as you said before. Um, we see variation of up to 13 degrees across an LGA. That's a local government area. Um, And it really depends on what you build. If you have green space, if you have blue space, if you have lots of roads, transport infrastructure, if you have high-rise buildings that you clamp into very small space, if you have black roofs, if you have all these things in combination, that makes you microclimate plus airflows and so on. So why is this phenomenon more common in regions like Western Sydney? Uh, you mean why it's hotter in Western Sydney? I guess so, yeah. Why is it hotter in okay, Western so Sydney? Why is it where, that's, a, that's a question I hear a lot. Um, there are several factors. One is that um, you don't get the sea breeze that the eastern um, suburbs get. The sea breeze effect stops at about Parramatta, a little bit before that. Um, We do see also that um, Western Sydney is in a bit of a depression, so not psychologically, but in the landscape. Mm. Um, The landscape is actually holding the hot air in. Uh, There's a ridge line that goes through the Sydney basin from north to south uh, that basically holds hot air in the west. 
and on, on top of all of that, you have clay soils that um, hold heat for very long. Plus, you have lower soil water capacity from lower rainfalls, and that in combination creates an environment that is generally hotter. So it's several factors. So there are all these geological factors, but there are also like urban development factors and to play, right? I was right? just getting to that, yes. So the whole development that you see out west is obviously contributing to the heat because when you transform gray, uh, to green to gray space, you're actually increasing the temperature. Green to gray space, what do you mean by okay, that? Okay, so out west we still have a lot of um, agricultural land, um, pastures, uh, bushland, and once you take that away and replace that with hard surfaces from roads, buildings, and so on, you increase the temperature because you're taking away evaporative cooling. Mm. So to what extent does the climate crisis impact the behavior of these microclimates? It accelerates what we're seeing, and that's why we're seeing these spiking temperatures of above 50 degrees now. That's really contributing to it. Your whole buffer effect from the environment gets smaller and smaller, and therefore your spikes become A, more frequent, and B, they become more severe. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swatha and Shami. We're speaking with Dr. Sebastian Fouch, an ecologist working with Penrith City Council to mitigate harmful microclimates. Now, you've worked with local councils in Western Sydney to tackle the region's hot temperatures. Can you explain your role in these projects and describe some of the measures being implemented? So one thing that we obviously need to know is where it is hot and where it is cold. When you want to do anything against heat, you need to know that because otherwise, what do you do? Where do you go? Uh, where do you plant a tree or what else can you do? So for that reason, we do a lot of what we call benchmark work um, where we start helping councils to actually understand where it's hot and where it's cold and therefore they can use their limited resources to get to some effective measures. Um, where should you, for example, change urban space into something that is cooling and where can you basically stay away from because it's already cooler. So take Penrith, you, you, you're talking about Penrith. Um, a anything along the river is, is absolutely fine. We see that during heat waves, you have probably seven to eight degrees lower temperatures close to the river, just because the river has a huge thermal mass. It doesn't warm that quickly. Mm. Plus there's a lot of evaporative cooling going on. Um, we document that and then council can come up with strategies to actually uh, improve how the river is accessible for the community, um, have more happenings in the evenings at the river. So you draw the people out of the hot city space into areas where it is cool. So you can really help the communities to make informed decisions once you know where it's hot and where it's not. And you gave us another example before uh, this interview where you mentioned about um, UV-protected children's playgrounds. Yes, I'm working a lot, and this is uh, across Sydney, uh, on playgrounds because playgrounds are extremely important for urban communities that don't have access with their kids to play in the bush, to go walking and running and hiking like lots of us grew up when there was not such a dense city where um, access to nature is so limited. So playgrounds therefore play a huge role for experience of nature, for risk, learning about risk and uh, self-limits. Um, interacting with other kids when you live in a huge apartment block it is limited in terms of contact you get so playgrounds become a real important asset in the community but when we look at neighborhood playgrounds in particular the smaller ones that are tucked away everywhere where you have thousands in Sydney of they often have no shade 
And they also use materials like rubber surfaces, soft fault surfaces, and astroturf that get excruciating hot. I measure more than 90 degrees surface temperature, up to 106 degrees actually last summer, um, of these surface types. And that just becomes a hazard. You can't even imagine a kid touching the and plague. Do get, 100 degrees. Yes, we do get yeah. more and more reports, if you look it up, from burns in playgrounds where you have second-degree burns on the soles of kids' feet. They're just so much more vulnerable as well mm. um, to heat generally because they can't regulate body core temperature as we can with sweating. They sweat much less. Um, plus, they don't self-regulate much because they don't have the experience. So there's a there's a cognitive development that we have to go through that we, you know, when you put your hand on the hot plate, you pull it away. Yeah. <laughs> when kids run on hot surfaces, I hear that all the time from educators, um, they just stop running and start screaming. So they don't get off the hot surface. Oh, so the wow. educators have to come and lift them up and um, put them in the shade. So there's this whole problem around, you know, what do you do then with the kids when they want to play, but they can't because you're not providing the right environment. So part of providing that right environment, um, a cheap option that you suggested was like tree coverage and mm. shade. Mm. Uh, can you talk me through that solution? Mm. Um, yes, trees are great, but they have their limits. Plus, they need time uh, to actually grow. So growing trees, we have to. But as I say, choose the right species and then give it time. Immediately to provide shade, we need to put other solutions up. And that is, for example, shade sales. They come at a cost. Um, we are now planning to build the first cool UV smart playground for Cumberland to actually show how it's done using the right materials and implementing the right shade. So there are a mix of sails and trees. You can use trellises to actually have climbing plants which grow much quicker and you just use trellises to provide that shade. It also looks beautiful. So there are quite a few options that um, can help. So if people want to learn more, they can attend your masterclass. Um, Penrith City Council's Cooling the City Masterclass on February 18th. Can anyone come along to that event? Unfortunately, it's sold out as far as I know, which okay. is fantastic. <laughs> Forget but it. But <laughs> still, there will be lots of media coverage. Uh, there will be lots of videos and other things coming out also online. Awesome. So keep watching that space. It's a very, very important event for the region and beyond. It looks like you need to keep doing more masterclasses. <laughs> I'll keep that <laughs> Just in mind. Just so we can attend, for sure. Thank you so much, Sebastian. It was an absolute thrill having you here today. Thank you. That was Dr. Sebastian Fouch, an ecologist working with Penrith City Council to mitigate harmful microclimates in the city's west. So that's, thank you so much. That's right. Uh, this is our climate crisis-focused episode of Backchat. We're talking all things climate crisis. Don't go anywhere because coming up, we are going to be speaking about what you can do to reduce your own carbon footprint, saving the world one mushy paper straw in my ice oh my soy goodness. latte at a time. But right now, we're going to play this absolute bagger. So this is Fatboy Slim. Remixing right here, right now with Greta Thunberg. If you cannot believe your ears, just listen to this banger. It absolutely slaps. You're listening to Back Chat. My message is that we'll be watching you. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams, my childhood, with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. 
We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you come here saying that you are doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. Right here, right now is where we draw the line. Right here, right now, 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 right here, right now.
the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact chat, your alternative to talk back. What do you do to reduce your waste on our changing climate? ABC News finance presenter Madeline Morris was shocked to discover her carbon footprint and is now actively making changes to her and her family's lifestyle to combat it. We have Madeline on the show to chat to us about how we can calculate our own personal carbon footprint and what it looks like to take individual climate action. Hi there, Madeline. Hi, both. It's lovely to see you this morning. Our absolute pleasure. So uh, what exactly prompted you to move to hold yourself and your family more accountable for your energy usage? Well, look, I've been, obviously, as all of us are, we're, we're very aware of um, our changing climate. And I think, like many people, I've been frustrated over the lack of um, movement at a systemic and governmental uh, level to reduce our emissions. But then I sort of thought about it and I realised, well, I keep on expecting somebody else to do something about it. And I haven't really even examined my own practices and what my own life is like when it comes to carbon emissions. So um, I've been thinking about it for a while and then I think the, the bushfires really just got me um, thinking, yep, I need to do something now. So uh, so we went online and I asked um, some experts about some carbon calculator, uh, carbon emissions calculators that I could use and uh, I chose to do two and I did them with my family and um, yeah, we came up with this with this result that uh, on one calculator, which was a more um, a more exact one because it uh, asked for precise amounts of gas and electricity usage, I came up with using eighteen tons of carbon a year, carbon dioxide a year, and on another one, which was a more user friendly one but was less exact, it came up with eleven tons of carbon a year. I'm not really that bothered about the fact that, that there was two different results. I think the, the the bigger point is that it's given me a baseline from which to work. Um, and so what we've decided to do is to work to reduce our emissions by at least 7.6% a year, which is the number that the UN Environment Program says the entire world needs to reduce our CO2 emissions by every year for the next decade in order to keep global warming to one5 degrees. So can you speak to us about the state of Australia's carbon emissions as they stand? Um, Well, look, they're not great. Um, The... the (laughs) 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 Um, As you will repeatedly hear the government say, they um, they say that they're going to meet and beat uh, the Paris targets, which are for a 26 to 28 um, uh, percent reduction by 2030. Um, but really, if you if you look at what our emissions have been over over the last five years in particular, um, they have actually been rising. So the uh, and the government will often say that it's it's I think they say that it's down twelve percent on two thousand and five levels, which is true. Um, but a lot of that drop actually happened when Labor was in power, and that was due to the GFC and also um, due to the effect of the carbon tax, which of course we we no longer have. So in the last five years or so, it's been rising. Um, it's dropped in the last year, largely due to drought and lack of emissions from um, agriculture, agriculture in particular. Um, so yeah, so we've, I mean, we've we've heard the government announce in the last 
um, last week that they want to move towards more gas usage as part of uh, to try and reduce our emissions um, because gas produces around about 50% less uh, emissions when it comes to... I don't know if you can hear my daughter in the background there, but she's <laughs> shouting out. <laughs> That's my three-year-old. Um, so she is... Yeah, so uh, the government says that it wants to move towards gas as a transitional fuel um, because it does have around 50% pure emissions than uh, coal-fired um, power stations, um, but nonetheless, I mean that's that's well below. Even if we do that, that is certainly well below what the UN says that we needed to do uh, to cut our emissions by in order to avoid mm-hmm. um, catastrophic climate change. So we can hear your your very adorable daughter in the background there. <laughs> I'm sitting I'm sitting in the front room and she's banging on the she's banging on the front front door. But I, but the point I suppose that you know that actually brings me to the point where I sat down with my daughter and and I'm I'm a the finance presenter for News Breakfast and I just thought oh well in order to make myself accountable for my own promises. And to make sure that I continue to do it, I'm going to tell the nation about it. So I sat down with my uh, eight-year-old daughter, Scarlett, we did the calculations together. And um, so she's really on board with it. And that was part of the, the, the great thing about doing it together was she is now thinking about things like cutting down meat and using our bikes more and how we can actually uh, make changes to, to reduce our own carbon footprint. So I love that you've made this a family affair. Um, you just touched on a few things that you guys have done so far, but what other changes have you been making to your family's lifestyle? Oh well, look, I'd, I'd say that we're at the process, and we're at, we're at the start of doing it now. So, um, you know, I've given our, ourselves a year to actually cut down on our calorie footprint. So we've got a pretty we've got a pretty long um, road, but it's simple things that, that we're already starting to do. So uh, I'm trying to get the kids. We are meat eaters, and I'm trying to move us to eat less meat, which I have to say is proving to be the, probably the most challenging part of it because my kids are massive carnivores. My three-year-old will eat three sausages in a sitting um, and she is not fond of tofu and she's not that fond of vegetables. So, that, so that's, that's probably the hardest part. Um, but we're going to look at um, our energy usage as well. So in Australia, um, energy uh, actually only, household energy consumption actually only um, accounts for about a third of uh, a third of our carbon footprint. The rest is um, mostly industri- two-thirds is industrial when it comes to um, energy. So it's not a huge part. I mean, well, it, it is a significant part and, and frankly, on an individual level, yeah, energy usage is not... Um, cutting down on one household's um, uh, carbon emissions via electricity is not going to do a lot, but you kind of can't take that approach. If if 100 households cut down, then that's something even more significant. And if 1,000 households cut down, even more. And if 100,000 cut down, even more. So we'll be looking at whether we should be getting solar. We're looking at going to be um, changing to a green energy provider. Um, these are all things that we're going to do throughout the year. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're with ABC News Finance presenter Madeline Morris, who's speaking to us about how we can calculate our own personal carbon footprint and how to take individual climate action. And we've got some texts in. So we asked earlier in the show uh, what you at home are doing uh, to uh, combat climate change personally, what personal action you're taking. And Jess from Chippendale has texted in and she says, 
Well, maybe they say, I don't know. I'm just being very, very assumptuous right now, right? Um, it is really, is it really possible for one person to make a difference just by recycling and being energy efficient? Shouldn't we be lobbying the government to make changes? And that was a point that you, you kind of touched on just before, um, uh, just before Madeline. Yeah, and look, that, that is a big, um, that's certainly a very sensible argument. And um, I've had discussions with people about, well, look, if you if you make it about your own, about the individual, then that absolves industry and it absolves government of responsibility for making wider systemic change. Um but I don't think it's about abs- I don't think it's about absolution. I think that it's about well, if you want to if you want to argue as as I do that there should be as many of us do that there should be greater change made. I think it is hypocritical to not actually examine your own practices in the first place and see that you're not doing the best that you can in mm-hmm. order to be a responsible environmental citizen. And of course. Like I said, I mean, 18 tonnes of carbon from me personally in the grand scheme of things, that's only slightly above the Australian average. It's That's not a lot. I mean, you know, politicians flying, making 50 flights a year or 100 flights a year, they would make 100 times that just as, as individual, as in, as individuals. Yeah, but on I think taxpayer dollars as well. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, you know, that, that is their job and, and that, is, that is part of what they have to do um, in order to serve their constituents. And so, yeah, it is paid for by... by I don't know whether any of those flights are offset. <laughs> I don't know. That would be a very good question to ask politicians. Do they even offset those flights? I don't even know. Yeah. But I just think that it, it enables you to argue more from a position of strength if you're saying that well, look, I have, at an individual level, recognised that all of us will need to make sacrifices to a certain extent, potentially, um, to reduce collectively our carbon footprint, and I've tried to um, make changes and, and perhaps some sacrifices um, in order to reduce my own personal in order to reduce my own carbon footprint. Yeah, I love it. So how can we calculate our own carbon footprints and start making changes? There are heaps of carbon calculators on the internet. Um, I'm told that, uh, so I use, I use one called carbonfootprint.com, um, and I can't remember the other one. If you go, if you go to, um, my Twitter feed at mad underscore Morris, you can see where they are and I'll, and I'll tweet them out now as well if you listen. But, um, so, but there are, look, there are heaps. Lots of them are run by, um, carbon offsetting companies. Um, there are some run by charities. I believe the Victorian government actually runs one as well. So it's just a matter of going online and, and seeing what, um, what suits you best. But there are plenty there. Thanks so much for talking with us this morning, Madeline. No worries. It's lovely and lovely to speak to you. And thanks for inviting me on. Our pleasure. That was ABC News finance presenter Madeline Morris speaking to us about calculating your own personal carbon footprint and what it looks like to take individual climate action. Well, that's all the time we've got for today. Another big thank you to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Dr. Sebastian Fouch and Madeline Morris. If you enjoyed this climate crisis focused episode of Backchat, we'd love to hear your feedback. Let us know on Twitter or text in. Uh, we'd be happy to do more themed Absolutely. episodes of Backchat in the future. And we'll probably keep covering climate crisis too. Yeah, let's be real. <laughs> um, we're going to play a favorite of FBI Radio's Young Franco's new song, Other Side, featuring Reva DeVito and Golden Vessel. Thank you so much for listening, guys. This is Backchat on FBI Radio.